I've pre-sold software products, you know, extensive SaaS products and made 90,000, broken up into 30,000 of pre-sales each time. Hmm. And I didn't even have anything for them to use straight away. But what they got was to have input in the product. So if that works for software, I think it absolutely could work for memberships. You could launch with a lot less than what people think. Right. Hi, I'm Rand Fishkin from Oz, and you're listening to my friend Ash Roy from ProductiveInsights.com. Welcome to the Productive Insights Podcast, where you can learn how to systemize, automate, and scale your business via the internet. To access previous episodes and useful productivity tips, go to ProductiveInsights.com. Now, here's your host, Ash Roy. Hey, thanks for tuning into the Productive Insights Podcast. It's great to have you here. This episode is brought to you by the Productive Insights Done For You podcast launch service, which positions you as a leading authority in your market and successfully turns listeners into high-value customers. Book a call with me on ProductiveInsights.com forward slash podcast hyphen setup to discuss how we can get started. I'll post a link in the show notes so you can just click on that. I know it's a long URL and it's hard to remember. Now, today's episode is a really interesting episode. It's with an awesome guest who is a prolific product creator. If you enjoyed this episode, you probably also will enjoy episode 43 on the membership economy with Robbie Baxter, episode 63 with Shane and Jocelyn Sams on how to set up a recurring income business using membership sites, episode 73 with Darren Rouse, the founder of ProBlogger, and he shares his secrets around prolific content creation, podcasting, and Facebook Live. Episode 69 with Peter Moriarty on how to use cloud computing for business success. And episode number two and episode 50, both of which were with James Schramko, where we talked about building a lifestyle business and talked a lot about recurring income models. Okay, on with the show. Hi, everyone. Our guest today is a physical education teacher from country Victoria, Australia, and he has a passion for the role emerging technologies play within teaching and learning. He's known throughout the online community as the PE Geek and authors a blog of the same name, thepegeek.com, which has proved to be an invaluable resource for teachers seeking effective use of 21st century tools in physical education. He's designed, developed, and marketed over 60 mobile apps for Android and iOS, which have been downloaded over half a million times. He's also had a very successful recurring income business, which offers information products. I had the absolute honor of taking the stage right after him at Superfast Business Live in March this year in 2016. And I can tell you that he was a hard act to follow. I'm delighted to welcome Jared Robinson, the founder of the PEGeek.com. Welcome, Jared. Awesome, mate. Thank you for having me on the show, Ash. Pleasure to be here. Mate, it's great to have you here. So, Jared, as I said in the intro, you have been prolific when it came to launching products. You've launched over 60 mobile apps, which have been downloaded like half a million times. And I'm sure it wasn't as easy as it sounds when I say it. You've shared a very moving story at Superfast Business Live. I would love it if you could share with our listeners a bit of a glimpse of that story you shared and your journey to how you arrived at the point you're at now where you have a very successful recurring income business. Cool. So, I mean, the premise of the speech at Superfast Business was on doing less, really. And, yeah. you know, it was a pretty hard lesson for me to learn. You know, I I made my first product in 2011. So three years after I started my blog, 
I made my first product, which is, you know, you just sort of think about that. I was putting out good content for a long time and eventually yeah. sold it as an ebook, made 92 cents. And, you know, that was Jeez. this dopamine trigger that if you make a product and then people buy it, then how do you make more money? Well, you just keep making more products. Yes. So that's what I did. I, d- I just kept making and making and making, and it was prolific. You know, I would have an idea and I'd bring it to life in that same week. There's no, no, you know, thinking, oh, will people consume it? And so my talk was about that problem that I had, which was a good thing, but also a bad thing at the same time. And how I eventually have reined it in and focused in on the things that I do best and um, started dumping the things that really didn't bring value. And it all came down to effective hourly rate as the sort of metric for deciding whether I do something or don't do something. And that's pretty much the premise of the talk. Right. Now, that's a very important point you just made about effective hourly rate. But before we go and talk about that a little bit more, which I'd love to, I just wanted to mention that you had a very good problem because a lot of other people, (laughs) myself included, tend to guess and second guess and third guess and 50th guess themselves when they are launching a product. Will the audience like it? Will they not like it? Should I use this brand logo? Should I use that logo? And they just agonize over the minutiae, whereas you sound like you're just a prolific product creator, which is one step ahead of the rest of us, I would say, in the entrepreneurial world. Yeah, I mean, I would treat it as being something that, you know, I'm happy about. You know, I, I don't have a shortage of ideas and the difference is I actually introduce them, I do them. And and the problem was I was acting on things that were ridiculous. You know, I built a comic book for my audience. Like, come on, like who, I, I'd serve phys ed teachers. So I thought it would be a great way to produce a comic and get my message in that fashion. It was ridiculous. You know, I made an album for phys ed teachers with music and I hired an orchestra in Romania and all this ridiculous sort of stuff. So if you think about where my best work was, it wasn't in producing comic books and albums. And the hard lesson was how do you make sure you focus in on the thing that actually matters because for a long time I wasn't. I was on to the next thing, on to the next thing, on to the next thing. And that was really expensive to build new things. And it also meant that my best work wasn't really reaching the people that it needed to. So a gift and a curse at the same time. Right. Okay. So let's talk about how you solve that problem then in terms of your effective hourly rate. Now, our common friend James Tramko talks about this a lot, and I'm sure you first heard it from him, but this is where I first heard it. And in fact, recently when I spoke to another one of our friends, Peter, who's the founder of IT Genius, he talks about the effective hourly rate as well. So how did you use that to come up with a decision about which products you were going to launch and which you weren't? Okay. So James was the thing that made this all happen. You know, I met him about a year ago, less than a year ago today, you know, at where we are recording this. And you know, I told him exactly what I had. I had over 100 products and and he sort of challenged me instantly to say that most of the products probably would not be worth my time and he exposed me to that effective hourly rate concept and then I started to think about, you know, what it was and how many hours I was doing and, you know, how much they brought in and immediately worked out that my best work was chargeable at a certain amount mm-hmm. and from now on if new products or existing product lines don't meet that minimum viable filtered effective hourly rate, I sort of don't pursue them. Or or if they don't have the potential to reach that particular point, I don't pursue them. Because obviously you've got to start new things and they have to start off at a certain 
right. you know, a little bit of hustle. But if they don't have the potential to be at the scale that my best work does, just straight off the bat, then, you know, it's something that I probably won't pursue anymore. Hard lesson, but it's been valuable. So tell us about your best work, Jared. What do you describe as your best work? Okay, so my blog is a platform and a resource for phys ed teachers because I am a phys ed teacher trained and, you know, worked in the classroom up until about eight months ago. Mm -hmm. It's a training website for teachers to learn how to use technology in their program. And it's pretty much a niche that I invented as well. Like back in 2008, no one was blogging about it as a phys ed teacher and how to use technology. So we birthed it. And I think the best way to own a niche is to invent it. So, oh, absolutely. you know, we certainly realized along the lines that we should offer in-person training for the stuff that we do and online training for the exact niche that we sort of birthed. And, you know, our best work is that it's delivering training and helping exposing people to that product line and the way of thinking and the training that goes along with it. So, Every one of our core products that supports that idea now is Uh what I would say our best work, whether that's in person, whether that's online, or whether that's through a member's community. They all support this professional development of phys ed teachers. That's our best work. So what products do you focus on now? Mostly it's all the, the, like the, the community. So everything is about that and it's about getting people into the recurring paid subscription. And as part of their subscription, they get access to so many in-person live training events per year. So for example, at the moment, they pay 199 US. This is teachers pay that. They can get in, they get all of the online training. So monthly webinars with experts. And, you know, I source all the the experts now because of my connections and so Mm -hmm. on. And, and expose them to new audiences. So they win, they get to be exposed to new places. And as part of their membership, they get to attend a in-person live training anywhere on earth. And um, fortunately, we travel a lot as part of our business. And, you know, we've been able to mix up this lifestyle of travel and teaching. And that's the the work that we do. And no one complains. I mean, it's it's looked at and held at in the highest of regard. And for a long time, we just ignored it. We were doing it, but we were doing all this other nonsense on the side because it was sexier or because it was... I don't know. I mean, we were pursuing stuff that probably didn't, we didn't do our best work in. And that's right. been a hard lesson. What do you do best and sort of get rid of the rest? So the 199 US, that's an annual membership fee? It is. So understanding your market's a pretty important thing. You know, I'd, I'd love to be able to charge $1,000 per year, yeah. but it's just not realistic. You know, I serve teachers. So, you know, they've got limited capacity to purchase. And we win here on scale, knowing that there's a lot of schools and a lot of teachers that could benefit from the program. So, you know, we hit up in the last two years, we've been to 32 countries and trained teachers face to face. And we get a lot of connections and a lot of people. So that's how we benefit. Our price doesn't have to be as high as, you know, other products and so on that are online. You have to know your audience and what they're likely to be able to afford is a really important sort of thing to learn. What sort of content do you have inside the membership, Jared? So it's webinars. People can access recordings of previous webinars. We do them Mm. monthly and they can either attend live or they can attend them through the recordings. And then obviously we do transcriptions and the PDFs of all of the webinars. Yep. 
We have other training courses that are just like video-based, step-by-step training through specific you know, areas. And then a big part of it is just the discussion around that content. So, you know, I do offer webinars to my list of 15,000, 16,000 people, but what they don't get when they go to the webinar is the ongoing support and, you know, the ability to leave comments underneath the the embedded video. And that's what really impacts them. That's where the change happens. It's not so much in the webinar, it's the follow-up stuff. So less about the content in the community and more about the discussion of it, which I think is, yeah, you don't need much in a community really. Hmm. That actually brings up a couple of important points. One is people join recurring memberships often for the content, but they stay for the community. For sure. The other really important question that comes up a lot, and I get asked this a lot, and I have asked this a lot in the past too, how much content do you need before you start a recurring membership site, which is at least initially content-based? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, you got to have something. You know, as you said, no one values the community aspect at first. Mm. So, if all you're saying in your communication and you're trying to sell it, and you say there's no content, we've just got to chat. I mean, it doesn't. It's not going to come across very well to your potential people purchasing it. So, you need something in there. You need like a course that high value something that you previously sold, or but it doesn't have to be much. You know, I've seen people crippled. You know, not releasing their membership because they're waiting to get their fifth or sixth or seventh or eighth course or right you know that's unrealistic you know like james would say what's the minimum dose what's the thing that will get them in there get them have to have a result and then sort of keep them in there and i think that's the best approach could you just start with say one or two courses and then build more as the people's ask questions and demand information? Is that enough to start a membership? Yeah, I mean, I think you can truly start with less too. I mean, there's nothing saying that you could launch a community and sell it as an MVP product with no content. And then what you do is you position it and say that this content is going to be geared towards exactly what you want. So you sell it on the premise that they get to have stake in what you then build. And you could have a, a slightly different price, like an early bird adopter type concept and you've got no content but you've just got places for people to discuss and choose what you then build and then obviously they invest in it they get to pick where you go with it and I would think that you end up with a better product because of the input from the people who are involved I've done that with software you know I've sold over the last couple of years I've pre-sold software products you know extensive SaaS products and made 90,000 broken up into 30,000 of pre-sales each time Hmm. and I didn't even have anything for them to use straight away. But what they got was to have input in the product. So if that works for software, I think it absolutely could work for memberships. You could launch with a lot less than what people think. Right. So it's a form of crowdfunding but in a thought sense. Absolutely. So maybe I'm coining a new term here, crowd thinking. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's literally what I did. So you know, with the software, I, p- I put up a landing page and said what it would be. I got some mock-ups made of what my thinking was and said that, you know, th- it would be available for them to access at a certain time period. And up until then, I was all about extracting their ideas about how I could shape it. And because I hadn't built it, then obviously I could introduce that stuff. So I won because I got a better product 
for starters. Yeah. I won because the money that I needed to develop the product was given to me in advance. And I think if you took that same model and applied it to a membership model, you could probably make it work. You just have to be open and say that, you know, we're launching, you're going to get early access. The course content will be shaped by the problems and pain points that you have. Yep. And it'll be dropped in on an ongoing basis. I mean, I think you could definitely launch a membership in that model for sure. Let me ask you something. Some people believe that you have to come up with a product first and then you find your audience for it. There's another school of thought out there that says build your audience first and then create a product for them. But this sounds like a hybrid of the two. Yeah, I mean, there's there's benefits to both. You know, I, I've had success and failures with both of those models. I built a product and then went to try and find an audience and the net result was I wasted 30000 I thought that if I could build a product and then all I have to do is find an audience, turns out no one actually wanted what I built. So it was a a really expensive lesson. You know, I'm much more in favor of having your audience, finding out what their pain points are and issues, and then building a product based on that. And that's what I've done with those two software products. It's pretty much what I did with my my community too. You know, Mm -hmm. I threw the emails and so on that I get people were really wanting to get access to online training so they didn't have to travel, so they didn't have to do this, that, and the other. And and the community sprung from that. It was, you know, I didn't ask them to put their money down first, but I launched with very limited stuff because I knew that what they wanted was an ongoing training, which I would provide ongoing, which I think is a tremendous way to view it. Like, what do they want rather than assuming? Okay. Now, you talked about a minimum dose that our friend James talks about when it comes to content, what's the minimum dose or the minimum viable community in terms of size and how big is your community? Let's make that two questions. So the first question is how big does a community have to be so it's not a ghost town, which is any recurring membership site's nightmare? And the second question is what did you start with and what is your community at now in terms of size? Cool. So I want to preface it and say my very first community. So this is my second, my version 2.0. My first one got to a 1,000 members and wow. then I stopped it because of it was just unsustainable with the current products I was offering. So I got rid of it and I still support it to some extent, but people all had the option to move to the other one or just finish. So I, I put a stop to that. So I learned a lot of lessons there and I knew that my second community, I needed to have a minimum launch list. So I moved a lot of those people from the old one across yep. before I opened it. And you know, I had about sort of 40 people that were in there on the first day with some content, with stuff. And so I could generate discussion and, and get things happening organically. Right. And, um, that was pretty important. I mean, like you said, you don't want to open up the doors and there's nothing in there for people. Mm. Like there's nothing at all. But I really like what James did has done with his and what I have replicated is making the forums where the content exists. So yes. in those initial days, people are coming not to chat. They don't get that yet. Like yeah. they're not coming there for that. But they're coming there for the content. And then over time, they're trained into yes. interacting with the comments and I think that's really powerful. So the conversation begins around the content. Absolutely. It's where it has to begin. It's really hard to force conversation to happen, you know, if there's not some content that they're sort of talking about. So, yeah, there's, it's been a valuable lesson. I would have made, if I hadn't have done that previous membership, it might have been a bit more difficult to get the new one moving, but I already had people to sort of funnel across. And then at this stage, we've got about 170 members in the new membership, which is ongoing payment membership. 
Um, and that's very different to how I sold the previous membership, which was a one-time access type model. Yep. Um, big lesson there. You know, you don't want to be selling products one time with yes. any sort of hint of having to continue supporting those people. Mm. Uh, it's a nightmare. Absolutely. Now, let's say we have a listener who is very interested in recurring income. I talk about it pretty often on my podcast, so I'm sure there's quite a few listeners who are interested. I've had Robbie Kelman-Baxter in episode 43, where she talked about recurring income, and then I had Shane and Jocelyn Sams in episode 63. But we haven't delved this deep into the practicalities of it, which I'm really enjoying in this conversation. So one question I have for you is, if we have a listener who doesn't have an audience like you did when you had your version 1.0, they're starting from scratch, what number of people should they aim to have in terms of super users that they know will come in there and, you know, engage in some way, make comments on the content that you put in there? How many people do you need to have as a minimum viable audience? Okay, I'm just going to use James's benchmark based on his experience, which he reckons is about 60. Wow. So 60 users that you've, you know, you've got in a waiting list type scenario that you can unlock the door to. But to be honest, I think it's really dependent upon your audience. Like for his audience, there's lots of competitive spaces and, you know, maybe if you're serving a very small and niche, you need less people because maybe there's nothing for them that, you know, would compete. There's no alternatives. You know, I'm just thinking, you know, my PE teachers who are interested in using technology, I mean, there's no alternative community for them. So if I had 20 people in a room, that's 20 people who get to interact and talk and communicate and share and and they're going to see value in that, you know, if, mm. if I get to orchestrate it well. So, I mean, I think there's no definite answer, but I would say that James, you know, his experience is pretty telling in this space and 60 is what he tends to say. But, you know, I launched with 40 and it's been successful. So I think it, it's dependent. And I guess, as you said, right, you were the only one, you were one of a kind when you launched and arguably probably still are. Still are. There's not going to be anyone, no. Whereas I'm guessing that even if James Schramko, who we're talking about at the moment, even if he does have the only forum-based site around online marketing, the field itself where you have online education about online marketing, that niche is very crowded. So maybe you do need more people to start with in that niche. Correct, because otherwise they're going to look at it and and look elsewhere and think, you know, what right. conversation could be happening here that's not happening there. So I think the numbers are really dependent upon the field that you're in. You know, if you've got if you're doing a community for chiropractors mm. in who are interested in and a certain area of chiropractic, yeah. you know, therapy, yeah. whatever it is, maybe it's a smaller audience that you need of people just to get a conversation going because they're underserved and it's going to yes. be something that they're going to really get behind. So I've found that, you know, my audience is craving for this. So for them, they probably don't mind as much that it was quite small to begin with, but over time they just keep seeing more people get added in and it just becomes more richer for sure with more people. So as you said, the best way to own a niche is to invent it. (laughs) Completely. You know, I look back in 2008, we didn't do that with intent to monetize it. You know, it took me three years before I realized I could even do something like that. You know, I stumbled across this website that you could make ebooks on. Mm. And I'm like, oh, I could build an ebook. And then at the end, it says, Do you want to put a price tag on this? Oh, okay, maybe. It hadn't occurred to me. 99 cents, see what happens. People bought it. And it was because we'd invented a niche and we'd built up trust in that niche. And people 
looked at us as the ultimate authority and we still are. So, I mean, there's been people that have come and tried to replicate our audience and no one's been able to do it because we were there first and we just continue to, to dominate it. We haven't gone outside of it, which is, I think, a key. Mm-hmm. We know what we know and we just keep chipping away at making that even better for people. Is that something you would consider doing in the future, going outside of it? We have a company that sits above the PE Geek and that provides training for phys ed in general. So mm-hmm. at the moment, I do training for phys ed teachers who are interested in technology, like very niche within a niche within a niche, pretty right. much. It, it's third layer deep. And that's been really successful. But our plans are to do the same thing in areas that are more general physical education. So that means hiring phys ed trainers, which we're doing at the present, to run events for us in other areas that I'm not an expert in. Phys ed technology, that's my game. That's the thing that I do best. We are. We are sort of broadening a little bit, mm-hmm. but keeping our defined channels in certain areas, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Now, I have a question about the content creation element. So let's say I have a minimum viable community now. I have, say, 40, 60, whatever, foundation members. They're telling me what their pain points are, and I need to create content around it. And I'm sure you were in that situation not long ago. When you created the content, did you do that yourself, or did you outsource the work to other people? And if so, how did you do that? So I do a bit of both. So people come in, and if if it's technology and phys ed related topics they want, you know, I'm going to do that myself. That's my expertise. But my community is inclusive of other areas too. So people are coming there, not just for tech and PE, they're coming there for other things. So I'm finding experts now who can deliver on those areas that we survey and find that people would like to learn about. So just before this call, I I had an email from someone in the community saying they'd like to learn about a specific topic. So I've just thinking at the top of my head right now, who can I reach out to in my audience who has that expertise, who doesn't really have a website or a brand or, you know, they would like to get notified, you know, noticed for the work that they do. And I can already think of some people. I'm going to reach out to them. I'm going to find them. I'm going to organize a time for them to run a webinar and they're building my content. And at the same time, they're being exposed to an audience. So I'm doing a bit of 50-50. You know, it's not just all me. It is other people in the field who have expertise. It's nice to know that they're not just seeing me and it means that I could eventually like take a bit more of a step back. It's sort of like guest blogging, isn't it? Because I've done a lot of that in the past where I create the content for somebody else's website and they get the content, but then I get exposure to their audience. Completely, yeah. So it's very similar to that. So that's the payoff for me as a content creator. Absolutely. And, you know, they, I communicate that to them and say, you know, you're going to, you're going to be exposed to a new audience and these people are going to follow your work. So feel free to give your best stuff to us. And they do. And, And it positions them as an authority, which is an excellent way to build an audience. Completely. So they leverage off my authority. So, you know, they've signed up to the community based on the relationship they have for me. So when I bring in someone and I say that this person is going to be delivering an amazing product, you know, Mm -hmm. whatever, webinar, the authority they hold for me gets diverted to that particular person and they get the benefit. Now, in my niche, in my audience, those people don't really know how to leverage that. They don't really have their own websites. They don't, you know, a handful of people do, but they don't know how to turn that into something. And, um, you know, I get to get the benefit and I do throw a lot of love people's way, but what they do with it and how they leverage it is um, something that I'm, yeah, not, they're not really doing that well. So 
there's opportunities for me to even mm. take it to like a, a mastermind type level and, and teach them mm. how to to amplify the you know the eyes they're getting. So there's lots of opportunities for me to take this even further and um, deliver you know higher value stuff. And do you have some kind of an agreement in place, letting them know that okay, the content that you create will belong to this website and that you have the IP rights to that content? So I don't own any of the content. I just tell them that it's available inside of the community and right. just make it clear. You know, I, I don't want to go down that line of IP ownership and, and so mm-hmm. on. And there's been a few people that have done webinars for me and I know that they've done that particular presentation at a conference or I'm not mm-hmm. too phased by it. I know that my audience haven't seen it and I'm just exposing mm-hmm. them to new content. So people would get very picky if I did the IP ownership. But in some niches, that's probably appropriate. You need to, right. you might need to do that. For mine, no, nah, not going to be, not going to be something that people would jump at to, to give me. But I like that. I think it's nice to just be a little bit laid back about it. And their content, if they've created it, they're free to share it. It's a bit like when you and I presented at Superfast Business Live, James gave us our respective presentations and said, you can do with it what you want. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, I pretty much follow that same model. I give them their recording and say, you know, feel free to use this if you're trying to pitch yourself to someone who might like to deliver a webinar or whatever it may be and um, people are pretty happy and content. So I'm selecting people who I know would be more than happy to do this. You know, I'm not going and picking someone who has an ego, who works in a university, who's stuck on this old way of thinking of IP and, you know, this has to be mine and my only, they're not sort of seeing the potential that it can bring for them. So I'm bringing in people who have the same vision about how it benefits them. Yeah, that's good. I really like that. It's a very open and collaborative approach rather than a defensive approach. I think so. I mean, and the best part about the community is not the content. You know, they get the webinar, but what they don't, what, you know, they can go and give their webinar to someone else but yes. what though that audience won't get is the the community and the discussion that goes around it Absolutely. and that's where i think the real value happens so i don't mind if they use it somewhere else now do you actually hire outsourcers to do any of your content and can you talk to us a little bit about the standard of content as in do you worry about things like ums and ahs do you worry about it being very polished or do you not care about how polished the content is but you're just more interested in the quality of information that the person is getting. So, you know, I've had people produce content for me. Um, mm. Some of the sale products that that I have in ebook form, I've never made had anyone produce a video series for me other than a webinar. And with that, it comes with all sorts of issues. You know, I had a guy who was doing a webinar for me recently who was who was actually sick. I still wanted the webinar to go ahead, but you know, there's a few moments there where we had to have a bit of a break for the whatever to happen. But I mean, the people in the audience, you can edit that, you can put it in. No one seemed to mind as long as they got good value. And as long as it delivered on what I said that particular training module would deliver on, then my audience, it's not really an issue. Um, I think they actually get a little bit lost in things that are too polished. You know, it just doesn't, I'm talking about teachers here. You know, they want to connect with someone who's a teacher, me, Hmm. you know, they want to see that I'm exactly like them and I'm not this big company that's polished with workers and Hmm. it it loses them a little bit. So I think for my audience, and again, it comes back to knowing them, it makes sense to be a little bit rougher and that may be different for others. Sure. 
Fair enough. Let's talk about the key elements of a successful recurring income business. Now, we've talked about quite a few, so I'm going to try and see how well I've done in terms of absorbing what you've said. And you can tell me the bits I've missed or you can fill in the blanks. But the biggest element to me of creating a successful recurring income business is don't get stuck in the minutia. Don't try and build a castle. Just get a minimum viable audience, create a minimum viable product, which could be just like one or two courses. Make sure you have a waiting list of people be it 60 or 80, depending on your niche. If you own the niche, it doesn't have to be as many people. But if you don't own the niche, if it's a crowded niche, then maybe you need more people. But make sure that there is enough good quality content that a conversation can start around and then use that conversation as a source of information for more courses or products or content that you will create for that community. Perfect. That's a great summary. You know, I think that's laid it out exactly like um, in a nice little bite-sized recap of what we've spoken about. Cool. Awesome. So to anyone out there who's listening, it's a lot easier to start a recurring membership than you would have imagined. And I'm saying that as much to myself as (laughs) as I am to anybody else. I've been thinking about it for a long time and I've been agonizing over the details, but I'm starting to hear how unimportant they are. So yeah, it's definitely something that that is an area of interest for me. What are the biggest challenges you've noticed? You've seen people try and get started with recurring income businesses and how have people overcome them? I think the challenge is the starting process. So, I mean, that's a big challenge. And we've spoken about wanting to put too much in it. Again, mm-hmm. that's a big challenge. And this idea of stuff versus, you know, just the result that people get from your community. So you've got to be very clear on what they get if they're part of it rather than, you know, is what outcome do they get yes. when they are in your community, not this is what they get in terms of 10 videos and four PDFs. And I think that's a big mistake people make. So you got to be clear on that. I've also, you know, I've, I've seen people launch things without really sort of thinking about who they're trying to target. Maybe they're scattergun approach. It's too many people and everyone. So they're going to launch a site for all entrepreneurs or, you know, all teachers. For me, my success has been on niched. You know, I've built a product that serves PE teachers that are interested in technology. You know, how niche is that? Hmm. But as a result, you know, I'm laser focused. I'm the only person that gets to do it. And I can't imagine anyone else launching a a, a competition Hmm. in that field. So I get to dominate it. And, you know, I I get to benefit by there still being lots of people who are interested in that. So I think people go too broad and then that really hurts them in the long term. Okay, that's good advice. So try and be niche. So coming back to your earlier point then, the result that you deliver to your audience, PE teachers, is you help them get more skilled at using technology as a PE teacher? Absolutely. So I can help them use it effectively to improve student learning and to assist them in being more efficient and effective. And, and technology is a big part of that. And, you know, they're real big selling points, you know. that. And the other part that I deliver on is that they get this from wherever they are and they get it really affordably too. So if I'm, you know, I have lots of contacts from teachers who work in remote parts of the world. You know, they, they teach in places, they don't have access to experts and professional development and this sort of stuff. But with a community, they can, you know, I get to bring those people to them. So I solve two fronts. I solve their training needs and I solve the delivery of those training needs 
And I'm very clear on that. I'm very make sure that they are buying it for that purpose, not because of the stuff that's in it. So how do you do your messaging? How does that go out when you're talking to your potential audience, not your existing one, but when you're looking to recruit more members? Is your messaging become a better PE teacher by leveraging technology, join this community? Is that sort of what your messaging is like? Completely, yeah. So it's it's very much about them, yep. not about you know, the stuff that they, it's about how it will benefit that person. People only buy for what it's going to do for them. You know, we don't buy a house to give our builder money. We buy a house so we have, you know, a place to live. So it's along that line of thinking of what do they get if they're in there? You know, are they going to be a better teacher? Are they going to be more, are they going to enjoy it more? Are they going to be able to improve their student learning outcomes and look good in front of their principal? So these are things Mm. that teachers struggle with and we make sure we deliver on those fronts and you know because I was a teacher and still am and technically you know I I understand what it's like and I write all of my messages and my landing pages in that voice you know if I was a teacher and I'm struggling with these things what do I want Mm. and a big part of my landing pages are little explainer videos you know like a, a, a short video that I make that tells a story of a person and I always give that person a name so my my current landing page for my membership has a video that's actually called Meet Lucas and okay. I tell the story of meeting this teacher called Lucas mm-hmm. who is very much characterized as the person who has these problems that the community then tries to solve. So that person is like a customer avatar, their customer persona that you've created the story around. Absolutely and I just I just take it a bit further by making a a video of where they are and yep. I and where I want to, to get them to. And it's very much like Darren Rouse's A and B avatar. You know, every, a lot of people build this A avatar, their ideal audience. They don't really think about what the B avatar is and where they should be at the end. Right. And, you know, if your job is to have them get between those two points so they don't need you anymore. People keep thinking that it's just about the A, but I love Darren's idea that it's no, it's about getting them to the B part so that they no longer need you. And if you can do that, then you're going to have this absolute loyal fan base that, that you know, eat up everything that you do. Mm. So in my video, I tell the story of or the landing page and the video tell the story of a avatar coming in and how they eventually become, you know, a trained teacher who's using technology more effectively and enjoying teaching a bit more. So that, that's the message I want to get across. So the video takes them through a journey, a transformation. The A avatar is before the transformation. The B avatar is after the transformation. So a teacher looking at that will go, hey, that Lucas, that sounds like me. That's me. And here's how I'm going to get transformed if I join the membership. So that is what you're selling. You're not selling, come here and get a fantastic course. You're not selling the course. You're selling the transformation. You're not selling the bricks and mortar in the house. You're selling the shelter from the rain. Absolutely. I couldn't have said it better. That's a great metaphor. So, you know, people are coming for that result. And then, hey, look, we've got all this other stuff as well. These are the bonuses. You know, you get these webinars. And those things are the the way that we deliver that core premise to people. And it's been great because, you know, I know my audience really well because I am the audience. Mm. I am the person who's experienced these things. So I know what their pain points are. And we just make it very clear that that's what the community is about. We start there and then everything else is a byproduct or a proxy to help get that. Cool. I'm actually talking to Darren Rouse tomorrow. So that should be pretty cool. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Now. Have him talk about the A and B avatar. I think it's an, it's completely obvious, but 
a lot of these avatars, you know, come up with your ideal avatar, they don't really think about where they need to be later. Yes, that's such a good point. We always think in terms of our existing customer's persona, but it's such a good idea to think about your destination persona for your customer so that you can sell them the transformation or it's not even selling really, it's offering them the transformation and if they want to buy it, they do. If they don't, they don't. Completely. I mean, you got to think about these people as sort of graduating from what you're doing. Like if they get to a point where they don't need you and you've assisted them to get through that change, I think that's a really good thing because, you know, they may not be a customer anymore, but they get to go and refer all their friends and say, you know what, this happened because of this this change. And he drilled that message home for me and that's become a real big part of everything I do. It's how will it benefit them and grow them not the stuff that that is in the membership. Absolutely. I have a podcast launch service and I've just recently helped one of my clients launch a podcast of her own and without my asking her for it, she's volunteered a video testimonial. She has referred me to three other people who are thinking of podcasts and that is purely on the benefit of the transformation that she's received and she's graduated from my... I guess, from my services in that she doesn't need me to ever set up a podcast for her again, but it so happens that now she wants someone to do her ongoing editing, so she's come back to me for that. So you're absolutely right. The idea is to make people independent of you, and if if you've done a good enough job, they will pay it back in some other way. Mm -hmm. Completely. Couldn't agree with it more. And, you know, I see that. You know, there's people that do graduate from my, my help, and that's not a bad thing. I think... You know, it means that my programs have been good. Yeah. I think we usually think of it the wrong way. And within the context of a recurring membership, you don't necessarily graduate though. You could just graduate to a higher level and then you go from being yeah. a newbie who's absorbing and learning content to somebody who's mentoring other people within that membership. So you still get something back as a senior member for want of a better term. Yeah, so if you design your product so that it's like that, Mm. you know, the people who have graduated and now become more connected teachers, well, maybe I leverage them to start delivering the webinars. So Mm. if there's, you know, there's multiple ways and multiple layers and multiple A and Bs that can be part of your product. But yeah, I think that transformation is, it has to be thought about because otherwise, what are you really achieving for the person? Okay, so let's talk about actions, my favorite part. So what are the action steps a listener can take to get started right away? One for me is don't agonize over the details. If you have an idea, start doing some research to see how unique your idea is, how unique your market is, and then think about how many people you need to have as a minimum viable audience for your membership site and then go about creating a waiting list Think about maybe one, maybe two courses that you could create that would solve their problem, a transformation that you could offer to those people, maybe have a few one-to-one conversations with some of those people and see how valuable that transformation would be to them and ask them if they would be interested in joining a site should you launch one like that. Is that a good starting point for a membership site? Yeah, I mean, you got to draw the line in the sand and you have got to make it happen. And, you know, I think something you could put in there is finding experts or people whose expertise you could leverage somehow. So if there's someone in a similar field, how can you get them involved, you know, and leverage off their expertise? That's something that you could use to kickstart your community somehow. But it all comes down to starting and and starting with less and being very clear about who you're trying to help and serve 
And I feel that for me anyway, once I have those things, I, everything else is much easier to follow along. So you've got you to be committed to, to finding that out. Do you recommend investing money on advertising up front to try and get those minimum numbers? You could. I mean, there's so many ways to attract and build an audience now and find out about those pain points. I'm more than happy to spend money in the initial if it prevents me from spending and wasting money on what I think is a product that no one wants. Yep. And, you know, I, if that comes down to you doing, a, you know, a poll or giving something away on running some Facebook traffic to it and building up a list of people who might be interested and you realize they're not, great. Because, you know, that maybe stopped you from going down the path of assuming they were and and wasting a fortune. And I've done that. I've learned that, you know, that lesson the hard way. And, you know, I would definitely err on the side of spending a bit less and knowing than wasting it. Yeah. Okay. Jared, do you mind telling us what books have had the biggest impact on you and why? I am a big fan of one of the probably one of the best books I've ever read is The Bold. It's called Bold Book by Peter Diamandis. Okay. Yep. It's not a business book at all. Well, it sort of is, but it's, it's actually a look into the exponential technologies which are present in our lives now, which are going to be rapidly accelerating in terms of their impact in the world over the next 10 years. Wow. And it's from an entrepreneurial point of, you know, if you know how to leverage these technologies, then you can build billion dollar businesses. And it's, you know, it's quite phenomenal. So he just looks at all the different exponential technologies and and what opportunities exist for entrepreneurs to exploit those in the early days. And basically, yeah, it's, it's a really big motivational tool. Peter Diamandis has a podcast as well called Exponential Wisdom, uh-huh. which is my source of inspiration related to anything. So basically what I got from it is think 10x. You know, how can you think 10x about whatever it is that you're trying to deliver? You know, and people are trying to do like 2% or 10% improvement. Forget that. Go and hit completely out of the park on a 10x scale because even if you don't reach 10x, you're likely yeah. to fall into a place where there's no competition hmm. um, because everyone's looking for small percentage gains and I mean, the reality is no one's really doing the 10x stuff. So I'm always thinking about what does 10x look like for this community? You know, Where can I take it so that it's a no-brainer to pick this as my choice right. if I was, you know, had to make a decision, you know, 10x. So Bold is, is really responsible for that. Steve Jobs did that a lot too actually. Completely. Peter Diamandis, he's, I think, a friend of Joe Polish's. Is that correct? Uh, they're all connected. So, I mean, he is he's responsible for the X Prize. Now, the X Prize is the ultimate MVP product. You know, he basically put up, I can't remember how much it was, a million dollars. It was years ago. He said, I'm going to give a million dollars away to someone who can get to space on a private basis and land. I can't remember what the specifications were. And he didn't even have the million dollars. Did not have it at all. He got all these teams competing. They had a couple of years to make it happen. Yeah. And in that time period, he leveraged the attention and the interest and eventually got people to put up the million-dollar prize and, you know, built this enormous this enormous source of innovation through an MVP-style model, essentially. You know, he, he didn't really have it until he had it. Yeah. And because of that, he's launched so many companies out of the X Prize concept, you know Virgin Galactic and yes. those companies. That's where that was launched. It was oh, okay. launched in X Prize. That was the prize that eventually led to Virgin Galactic and Virgin acquiring the rights to that company. 
And he just keeps repeating that with different fields. So there's X prize in robotics, there's X prize in human biology, and they keep spawning these incredible, these incredible businesses. So there's lots of learning that in terms of how he birthed it, you know, he's even mining asteroids at the present while planning to mine asteroids. So it's 10x thinking, you know, what would 10x thinking look like to the people in their businesses now? Because I think we often think too small. Is SpaceX also related to this initiative? So that's um, Elon Elon Musk, Musk yes. SpaceX. Yeah. yeah. So they're they're all connected, you know, Peter and Elon, and they're all involved in that. But it's absolutely if one industry or one, you know, it was the first people that won the prize. It births all these other competitors. Mm. So that book is phenomenal, and it sounds really interesting. As an entrepreneur, you just burn through it and it just serves to show you how powerful, how amazing our world really is. You know, we get bombarded with the opposite all the time. But you read something like this and just it just makes you, yeah, appreciate humanity and the sort of stuff that people are doing and the opportunities that we can do if we really focus in on, mm. you know, the potential. Really sounds interesting, man. I'll definitely... <laughs> got to check it out. Yeah, definitely will do. Yeah, Absolutely. Jared, how do listeners find out more about you? And is there anything else you'd like to say before we say goodbye? No, it's been a pleasure. You know, I love the opportunity to talk business. I work with teachers. You know, they they are my audience, and I don't really get an opportunity to talk business all that much. So I, I get a you know real <laughs> sense of enjoyment from doing it. So I really thank you for for asking me to come on. If if you want to find out more, I, I have another website called The Teacherpreneur. Oh yeah, which is where I blog about my business stuff, sort of like a case study of how you can do the things that we're talking about right Mm -hmm. now. And my audience there is teachers who, and entrepreneurs as well, but more so teachers who have an entrepreneurial bug and how they can leverage their skills to build an income. Because I feel like that's the next logical step for me, helping entrepreneurs who are also teachers. That's where I would send most people. And that's the teacherpreneur.com? theteacherpreneur.com. Yeah. Cool. I'll definitely include that in the show notes as I will all the other episodes and all the other resources you mentioned. So thanks very much for being on the show and I'd love to have you back again one day. My absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. This episode was brought to you by the Productive Insights Done For You podcast launch service, which positions you as a leading authority in your market and successfully turns listeners into high value customers. Book a call with me using the link in the show notes to discuss how we can get started. And I'll even tell you how I recently got my client 26 new leads in one month and enough business to more than pay for her investment within six weeks of having launched her podcast. Book in a call with me and I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Productive Insights Podcast. You can find all the links in the show notes below this episode on ProductiveInsights.com. You can also ask questions in the comment